How far back does the history of wine really go? How many questions should we be asking ourselves before we simply pop a bottle open and start to drink? And even when we ask the right questions and consider the vast amount of time that wine has been a part of our lives culturally, does that make it feel any better to just get plastered with your friends and pretend like you know what the fuck you're talking about when you say it has a lovely bouquet and a really nice body. These questions and more aren't necessarily ones we should have firm answers to, but if you're interested in how to get laid by making it sound like you know how to talk about wine, or just sort of convincing yourself you enjoy it a little bit more, well, you might consider taking my master class. That's right. I'm Robin Hood, and I'm here to teach you everything I've ever learned by nicking bottles from the Sheriff of Nottingham Cellar. Now, come with me on an exciting journey into the history of wine, the wilds of Sherwood Forest, and <laughs> here's hoping, well, a certain uh, <clears throat> Friar Tuck's Sacramento Cellar. Now, let the adventure begin. And that's about as far as we'll keep that bit up for now. This episode will be a little bit different because, unfortunately, I am the only host you have this evening, which means that there is no one pulling my reins or keeping me from being an interminable bore, and also I don't know if I've done enough research to really pull off what I have in mind, so bear with me, buckle down, and pray to God that you get both of us next week. Anyhow, this might end up being the first in a series of episodes that are supposed to be a little bit more focused on specific... Um, topics in the history of wine or the nature of wine than discussing actively drinking wine or wines themselves um, because without someone to riff with or to make conversation or again to keep me from just going off on wild tangents that I don't reel myself back in from I don't know if this will be any good but what I would like to do is a Rundown, uh, speed run, very, very poorly researched and off-the-cuff history of wine, because the more we do this show, the more it occurs to me that there are certain assumptions we make, uh, not just in terms of what people know, but in terms of what we know, and in looking into 
um, some of those assumptions, I have discovered not only that there are certain things that I have thought about for a while that I have strong opinions about that I um, really want to get into and might in this that uh, oof, are really just the nuts and bolts of um, what I consider most important to talk about in terms of wine and enjoying wine and in thinking about wine, but also some things that I did not know and uh, clarify for me um, the insane levels of study that really getting a handle on wine in its fullness would take, um, which, well, yeah, I'm, I'm talking myself in circles already, and I don't know if that's helpful. So, um, to start with, the wine that we all drink, the wine that we all think of as wine, is a particular species of the Vitis genus of uh, viney plants. Um, there's a fun little distinction there uh, between um, types of plants. Vines are a type of plant. There's another type of plant similar to a vine, uh, another order of creeping plant called a bine. Uh, wine grapes are a vine because they grow woody structures. They're a perennial plant that grow woody structures and support themselves crawling up other plants or structures with tendrils. And then there are bines, uh, which hops is a bine, which are plants that grow upwards by spiraling the main um, shoot, the main uh, vascular structure of themselves up around. Um, in the case of uh, hops, usually a piece of twine. So if you look at a hop plant, the, um, the core stem is actually corkscrewing upwards around uh, around a suspending um, uh, support string. And in the case of vines, uh, there's actually some other, um, uh, you know, woody structure off of which shoots are growing and tendriling up something else that are pulling it upwards, or uh, not so much pulling it upwards, tendrils hold on and allow those woody structures to develop so they can hold itself up as it moves upwards. So, um, Vitis vinifera, it's a specific type of vine, it's a specific genus, or a specific species within the genus Vitis that originated, so far as we can tell, in um, the sort of uh, Black Sea Crescent up in the area now known as Georgia and Armenia, and the oldest known winery in the world, the oldest uh, archaeological evidence of a winery is in modern-day Armenia. Um, that Vitis vinifera probably originated either in Georgia or somewhere else further back in the uh, obfuscations of history and the mists of time make it hard to really figure out who to give the credit to about that because, um, you know, crediting someone with absolutely having planned on and figuring out how to... Um, get wine grapes to grow is something that uh, we're going to be able to do and we should all spend a lot of time worrying about. But it's it's not entirely fair to the fact that um, it, well, uh, this is why someone else should be on the show with me. Um, the origin of the plant's fascinating in the sense that it, 
doesn't come from where we think of it now. And we've talked about this before on the show, but and this kind of I'm hoping to make this a repeated theme at least of this episode and continuously uh, it I feel like has been a theme of our show the valuation of wine and the prestige of wine uh, well those are very modern things and they're very specifically modern wine as a as a valued product as a part of life goes back very deeply basically wine has evolved and the idea of wine has evolved along with and this is where we're gonna we're gonna start going off the rails early um wine has evolved with and the value of wine has evolved with the idea of value in particularly european western colonial um capitalist structures like wine and and like many other things in that context wine has its origin and the depth of its history somewhere else and in something else and in the case of in the case of uh this particular chapter of wine history it began very slowly it began before people were really keeping track of how it was beginning and percolated out of the most either eastern part of Europe or western part of Asia. Um, there's, you know, a man, the, the particularly right now, that feels like a very, um, there's a whole other episode talking about, been talking about history that I don't know quite enough about that I would be fascinated to learn more about in terms of wine, um, in other terms as well, but the nature of Western Russia and the then the Soviet Union and the relationship between Europeanization, uh, European identity, and the Western edge of Russia, and then the relationship between all of that and capitalism and the eventual... Uh, oh, d- different course attempted by that part of the world um, also has a fascinating relationship with wine, but that's about 5,000 years, 6,000 years, 7,000 years later than what I'm talking about right now, which is when Vitis vinifera uh, was being actively and purposefully cultivated and harvested in those regions. There's evidence of Vitis vinifera uh, throughout Europe at that point in other locations, but the oldest known winery is located, the, the, the archaeological evidence for the oldest winery in the world is in present-day Armenia. Uh, fast forward oh, nearly 3,000 years, 4,000 years, and you get to, well, first the Greeks, well, prior to the Greeks, the Phoenicians, then the Greeks, uh, then the Romans, and that is where, well, it's not fair to say that's where our story really begins, but that is sort of where the, uh, what's the way to put it? That's where the start of what we can talk about in terms of the market of wine 
exists. And the market of wine within the Roman Empire in particular is fascinating because wine was not exactly... Well, again, the, the value of wine has changed with people's value over time in the sense that the Greeks, and then when the Romans stole a bunch of cultural things from the Greeks, had a god for wine. Like, And there are a lot of ways in which, and, and this is a problem that I try to contend with in my own thought a lot and then wind up trying to contend with in particular ways while talking about you know wine but then by extension of all kinds of other stuff because i like to stray off topic on the show we learn about greek gods and roman gods as superheroes now we and i said that as though it were um contentious but we in our cultural understanding of these things and i'm not saying that it's necessarily bad but we have stories like i mean the the obvious one for those stories would be like percy jackson and the olympians where you know the, the greek gods are in existence and still having children and they're having demigod or children of god whatever the you know the, those sorts of adventures greek greek mythic adventures in our modern era and they they have special powers and they can do amazing things and they're superheroes and then in marvel movies you know you have more norse gods but you know you still have thor and loki and hela and you know those characters are brought out of legend into our world as the characters they are of legend with the sort of powers that they wield as interacting with the world in a way that is very uh the the myth is robbed of its relationship to the mundane which was i think and this is a theory that um, i'm would i you know i have tried to do a bunch of reading about it i have a lot of um th thoughts on it that don't necessarily fit into the context of a wine podcast but a lot of myth or m mythic storytelling or um cultural storytelling tradition isn't the point isn't about the powers of gods or the ability of uh thor to destroy lots of cgi monsters with lightning it's about the relationship between forces of nature or or forces of society or forces of culture and people and how people interact with each other and how people interact with the world so the greeks didn't have a god of wine because he could spew wine from his hands and you know magically make every party fucking lit bruh they had a god of wine because there had to be a focal point for stories about wine and about the purposes of wine and about the relationship between people and celebration and celebration and the seasons and there was there was a role for Bacchus in life that wasn't that wasn't flippant. 
it wasn't um, cheap. And the same was true for the Romans. And these, you know, these... Uh, this is a, a difficult part of history to go into because people's belief systems were so different from what they are now and the relationship to the world was so different from what ours is now that we can't think about it properly without a huge amount of work and we can never probably do it instinctually. We can try, but we are fundamentally different creatures from Roman or Greek people when it comes to our daily life our conception of history, time, agriculture, work, all of these things. And one of the things that we can't relate to in a way that we might like to think we can is wine. Because we don't have a god of wine. Uh, we have... Well, we have wine. Uh, we also have beer and whiskey and vodka and... Rum and White Claw and Mike's Hard Lemonade and I already mentioned beer. Um, God, we, thank God we have beer. I mean, you know, not the God of beer, but, you know, God, uh, who, you know, just because I don't believe in them, it, whatever, doesn't mean I don't appreciate that they gave us beer. Um, but we don't, we don't have a figure, we don't keep household gods, we don't, pray to icons or uh icons isn't even the right word but but we don't the people who understand how those sorts of worship worked how those patterns of uh acknowledgement and consideration and meditation on the stories and the nature of particular um deities the people who understand that are um classics majors, uh, professors of history, um, and, uh, well, n you know, um, not me, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think most of us, because we live in a world where we can look anything up, but there was a point when people knew the things that they heard from other people or experienced of the world itself, but they likely didn't read, or even if they could read there wasn't very much to read because making a book or a text or whatever um you know the printing press hadn't been invented wouldn't be invented for millennia like you lived in a completely different way so hearing certain stories meditating on certain stories uh listening to priests of certain gods listening to stories of certain gods following rituals of certain observing certain rituals that all had a different relationship to how you progressed through a year through a series of seasons um because because your life was fundamentally different from anything we can conceive of now and so is live uh, life of everyone around you in the way that all kinds of things function so essentially what i'm saying is uh, I have no idea what it would be like to believe in or worship a god of wine, but I believe that people did, 
And I believe that that's a big part of why we have wine at all. Or rather, I believe that the urge to have wine led to there being a god of wine. And then the culture, a culture with a god of wine becomes the empire that winds up defining Europe. Uh, you know, not to discredit any of the other um, glorious brutalities of empire throughout history, but Rome is uh, pretty important to, you know, setting up the uh, Middle Ages and changing the shape of the European uh, European cultural continent. Um yeah, look, I, look. I, I'm not trying to make any crazy claims here, but Julius Caesar was a pretty important guy. He was like, he, he you know, he did a lot to the uh, to the to, to to history. And despite that, during the Gallic Wars, there were a couple times when Julius Caesar showed up to discover that the lands he was conquering, the places he was invading, already had. Roman wine merchants doing business there prior to his legions arriving. So the market incentive of wine, the goal of being able to get drunk, that preceded conquest. And I don't, you know, I'm not doing a great job of talking about it maybe, but that fascinates me because, and this gets back to the thing that I... I uh, wanted to really get into because there there are a lot of considerations with wine that are throughout its history fascinating and we'll get to the major one besides vitis vinifera um well part of it's to do with vitis vinifera in that in a moment here but so you've got vitis vinifera over in eastern europe and then it's moved west by the phoenicians and the greeks and then eventually excuse me eventually rome creates a context of conquest if you will in which wine is able to spread throughout the european continent much more quickly and culture the culture of wine is changed by this cultural exchange and its movement throughout all these different places and what's fat you know they're they're and this is why i'm you know there there's probably a deeper level of research that i should have done about all this but the level of evolution that occurs during that whole period and the depth of oh just ge- geographical discovery made through agriculture via wine is probably you know well you know if you're if you're growing vitis vinifera the soil type matters the climate matters the amount of sun exposure the slope of the hills depth of the soil the oh air currents the um, the native insect populations, the native uh, likelihoods of fungus or, um, oh, uh, uh, I mean, I don't, who knows if there were viral problems back then. All of these things are considerations that we still have with viticulture, but we have so many more tools than were had at the time to investigate all of those things. So the pro progression of wine throughout Europe was happening at a very deliberate, very stolid pace where all of the work was having to be done by hand. They didn't, you know, the same way that, you know, like we don't understand what it's like to have a god of wine 
blessing the endeavor. We don't really need one because we got a fucking tractor. Like, we, we can get a lot of shit done. But, like, they couldn't. They were doing all of this by hand. So, so that said, and this is an estimate I came across online, it is incredible to think that at one point in Rome, a bottle of wine per day per Roman citizen was likely at least produced, um, or sorry, consumed, you know, who knows how much was produced in relationship to that, but, so, yeah, I'm making these points poorly because I, I wrote down some notes, but I'm not going through them, uh, with, with incredible perspicacity, um, the evolution of wine throughout this period was very deliberate and a, a ebb and flow, there, you know, People weren't, nobody can be sure exactly when, what showed up where, and how it evolved, or who got it to evolve quite right over time, but things did. Things settled in pretty nicely, and wine was incredibly important. Wine was the, you know, wine was a huge product in, in, uh, for Rome, and a huge part of Roman culture, and that goes to the extent, this is the major conundrum and a consideration that, um, again, like, makes sense in a, you know, we think of it in a modern context, but wine and wine grapes are one of the first examples of a product not only being planted so that you're using up ground that, well, so, okay, and I'll get into some of the information I actually looked up. Um, Pompeii was a major producer of wine, and amphorae from Pompeii uh, have been found, you know, in many, many reaches of what was the Roman Empire, and counterfeit amphorae from Pompeii, or amphorae claiming to be from Pompeii, have been found. So not only was Pompeii's wine, the wine from that area, highly prized it was so highly prized that people were trying to fake it um but you know unfortunately uh that's in pompeii so in 79 ad when uh i hope i got that right um when mount vesuvius explodes that has a big impact on the uh roman wine industry and vineyards start getting planted because of the shortage of wine to replace grain fields to such an extent that in 92 AD, uh, Emperor Domitian, uh, Domitian, Domitian issued an edict against the planting of new vineyards, and this wasn't repealed until 280 AD by Emperor Probus, and he has just got the best name of any uh, Roman emperor that I had never heard of before. Um, but to ground that was used for grain like growing wheat growing bread was switched over to grow vineyards because there was such a shortage because an important uh an important city in the production and distribution of wine was well suddenly um gone so not only that but not, not only was arable land land that could be used for other arguably more important crops like crops that have you know keep you alive value not just get you drunk value not only that wine 
even in this era, was being grown for quality over its quantity. People wanted better wine versus just more wine. And that was understood even in, like, even that far back into history. So, and so this is the, the conundrum of wine that I am constantly obsessed with and am always trying to talk about, which is it has this nearly unique relationship to culture and capitalism and and production it is a product that it again the value of wine has changed as our idea of value has changed but the idea that wine has an inherent value and that good wine has an inherent value that sets it apart from average or mediocre wine that persists and what you know those value that value can be argued over but there is this understanding and this notion that wine of superior value should be sought out and its monetary price should be increased to express that value and the thing about wine now is the availability and the production of wine allows for scarcity to enter that equation in a way that can continue to drive that value up. What is difficult about that, or maybe what is uh, frustrating, is that the, well, you know, what what does that mean? What does that equate to? What does that wind up looking like? And what are what is people's relative access to all that stuff? You know, it's, it, what's, what's frustrating about it is that it turns wine in my opinion, into an essentially perfect metaphor for scarcity and class in our society. It is, I think, a uniquely positioned product in that it it goes from incredibly cheap and mass-produced all the way up to the most rarefied, expensive, insane bullshit. And that represents our current moment and our reality in a way that wine has done for as as just from what i have the scan of the history of wine and what i'm trying to relate about the history of wine in this episode it's always done it's always been the thing that everybody whether or not uh, this this is the other thing about wine right you to develop the opinion that you don't like wine you have to make a bit of an effort but and you know maybe this is wrong but i feel like i've had enough of these experiences in life to say this i'm very bad at um god no i'm not let me make an assertion for you all right let me let me say this wow let me let me postulate this let me make up some horrible confusion of accents to state the thing that i'm thinking if you bring up wine to somebody and they don't know about wine, they'll say, oh, I don't know anything about wine. Because to get to the place where you feel comfortable saying, oh, I don't like wine, you have to either be... It doesn't take a lot of experiences with whiskey that somebody doesn't like to go, ah, oh, I don't like whiskey. Same is true with tequila or vodka or whatever. Uh, I mean, I, you know, the other end of that is like, drinks that are supposed to be so innocuous like white claw or mike's hard lemonade that it's like you know 
I don't like Mike's Hard Lemonade, but that's because I don't like how sweet it is. Uh, White Claw, I, you know, it's seltzer water that I forget has alcohol in it until I'm drunk and I have to sleep on a friend's couch. Like, but then with beer, people will be like, I don't like beer. Because, you know, they maybe had a couple cheap beers, whatever. They, they don't feel like they like beer. If you only had a couple wines, you, you have to drink a fair amount of wine before you get out of, I don't really know anything about wine. And if you just keep having cheap wines that you're like, oh, I don't really like this, then you're still stuck in, I probably just haven't had good wine, so I don't really know. Like, ah. And most of the history of wine was it not necessarily being amazing, but, like, people did all kinds of shit to wine throughout history to change the way it tastes to try and make it better. They, like, people would add spices to wine. People would add resin to wine like retina is the modern like greek version of that but people were adding pitch to wine throughout history to you know impart like a bitterness or a tannic quality to it because and this is another thing a lot of wine was being pressed just by it getting stomped above uh gutters or like you know ridged um rocky uh cutouts so that the juice would trickle out and then could be um be collected and then fermented in amphorae or you know big vats like that but usually in clay vessels or in other vessels that were not wooden and so likely oak casks were introduced to you know rome in about 350 bc and were originally you know a transport vessel and it's a whole episode that's probably worth doing in itself about like the history of barrels and wine and aging in oak or fermenting in oak and oak tannin and the relationship between oak and wine and the relation and there's also something to be said about like looking at the you know people thinking about me thinking about and then talking to you about the relationship to oak being grown oak growing in similar areas to where vineyards can grow and the relationship that was able to develop pretty naturally from things just being in the same place. Anyhow, people added stuff to wine to, you know, enhance tannins or to soften tannins or whatever uh, to, you know, muffer against acidity. And the thing that blew my mind to read and we'll get into, I mean, there's, there's so much that, well, uh, lead used to get added to wine as a sweetener because, because... And this, this is like, this is, again, what I mean about, uh, we don't understand what it was like to have a god of wine, but we also don't really understand what it's like to think about a world without mass sugar production. Like, like it just, so, I'm trying to get a couple pieces of information to make my point but i'm not going to be able to do it quickly enough the point i'm making is wine predates so many of the things that we have to make it and to enjoy it now and it predates that by so far that it was culturally entrenched and valued in a way that we can't fully perceive because the unique place it had in people's lives was insane like it's 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 insane to try and com- comprehend the history of wine with our culture because we it it goes back you know nearly as far as when the bible was likely written like 
it's old. It's an old thing, and we have a deep relationship to it, and a deep relationship to our notions. There's a deep relationship between wine and our notions of history and culture and value because it is of the things that we can make out of what we get from the planet one of the few things that we can experience as viscerally as we as what it's like to listen to music or um or you know uh to listen to music or look at a painting like you can drink wine and taste it and smell it and you know there's there's wine out there that you know there's wine out there that people still care about buying and drinking that is older than not just like digital music or you know you can I've I've had wine older than digital music there's wine out there that is older than anything but phonograph recordings still in bottle that you can still drink and that you know is pro- some of which is probably still good like that's wine some of which is certainly still good like wine is a is a is a form of sensory preservation and that astounded people for so long and was so important to people that it just you know it's hard to it's hard for us to conceive of how people would have related to that but anyways fast go back to the the history stuff so like wine you know it moves east into greece and rome and then rome starts expanding rome really starts expanding wine throughout europe because it has a a cultural value and that cultural value puts it in the context of having a market value or vice versa you know well not really vice versa like it's it's so important to you know roman culture and to roman people that they're trading with people in the parts of the world that they're conquering and establishing vineyards there and some so established vineyards in what is now spain and then uh from spain take vines to what becomes bordeaux and a lot of these regions like the the most profitable or like successful early wine regions were all places that were coastal not just because there was good grape growing uh to be done in places with coastal influence but because it's a lot easier to move wine over the ocean or by sea than it is over land so you know you have a ship full of amphorae and romans would put fill ships with sand so they could stand the amphorae up in the sand um that's a lot easier to do than and you know best case scenario you fill a barrel and you got it on a cart like that's that's a pain like moving a full barrel of wine around is like not that's not easy that is that is hard so you know you don't really want to move big vessels of wine except by boat if you can that's part of why it took burgundy a long time to catch up with other parts of france because and when they did you know they did hard but that also like weaponizing the value of burgundian wine then became part of what allowed burgundy to become a really powerful region within france so this this huge material history to the value of wine and where wine was made versus where wine was being able to be moved versus where vineyards were being able to be planted or instituted versus which varietals 
were showing up where just by accident essentially and then people figuring out over very long periods of time which grapes grew best in which area and that all lasts for hundreds hundreds of years hundreds and hundreds of years until you get to the point where well and this this is really one of the just it's like it's just nuts to me and i don't you know maybe i'm just not studying history deeply enough or like reading the wrong sources but you get to the point where europeans make it to america and before columbus gets to america when norse people get to america they see so many vines everywhere they see so many types of vines growing that they call it vinland that was what that was what the leaf erickson that that was who it was Ah, man, I really need to, yeah, so he gets to, he gets to America, and he calls it, he calls it Vinland, as there's so many goddamn vines, and then, you know, nobody cares, because he's not figured out the, you know, the worst ongoing atrocities of mankind can be perpetrated by colonializing this continent, and then handing off the colonial reins to this continent, but... Vines show up in America, and there are already a bunch of Vitis uh, varietals here. There's Vitis labrusca, riparia, rotundifolia, and vulpina. And vinifera shows up here, and is eventually uh, first um, brought into major production, uh, apparently in the in uh, 1600s. Sorry, I think uh, right down the time. Uh, cat just got in a fight. One sec. Maybe I'll edit this out. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Ooh. Well, hope that's okay. Um, man, I'm being way too serious, and I'm just talking to myself, and I don't know how to do that well. Uh, anyways, um. New Mexico. This is where that's where they first started growing Vitis vinifera, or yeah, first started really growing Vitis vinifera in North America, um, because you know history is funny that way. But uh, then the chapter that I know, you know, I know we were all waiting to get to is when uh, American producers, you know, there are a bunch of vines over here, and people go, well, maybe these will grow well in Europe. And maybe we can make a good wine from them out there. And then they introduced phylloxera to Europe. And then we should probably do a whole episode about phylloxera. There's a there's a book called Phylloxera, all about phylloxera, because phylloxera is pretty important. That it's a uh, it's a I believe a root aphid is the technical term um, that uh, kills plants over time kills grapevines over time and it's a it the, the phylloxera is native to north america so north american vitis varietals vitis labrusca vitis riparia they are resilient to it they've developed resilient resilience to it over time vitis vinifera is not resilient to it so to be successful growing uh vitis vinifera anymore you have to in most cases unless you're growing it somewhere that you don't think you have a problem with phylloxera uh, grafted onto, you have to graft part of a vinifera plant onto a labrusca or riparia plant. So the roots are one species, and the canes, fruit, and leaves are vinifera. Uh, 
and that that throws a whole big wrench in the European wine industry there for a few years, and it's saved by the, the wholesale um, ripping out and replacing of vineyards with grafted vines. Um, and well, maybe we'll do a part two of this. Maybe people will hate this episode. Maybe it was too philosophical. Maybe I don't know. I don't know what. But the um, there's again like I'm just fascinated by wine's ability to provide these amazing metaphors for uh, capitalism, for trade, for class, for all of these things, and for there to be these incredibly poetic moments where Europe colonized North America and wine, you know, grapes were brought over and people started trying to grow this product here, and then people tried to take it back to Europe to see if they could do something with it over there, and, you know, like it's it's so it's you know it's not it wasn't enough like it's not in terms of karma it's not it's not the retribution or the the comeuppance that europe deserved but for bringing all kinds of diseases to north america that just decimated been more than decimated you know that obliterated the population of peoples living in in the americas i mean at least there was something that could be taken back to europe to fuck with them from uh from america and you know maybe it was just the wine industry but still something something had to something had to bite them in the ass about all that and so hopefully i'll do another episode like this or be able to come up with some sort of series of episodes when we can't record together but or get better at doing this for for y'all sake but um yeah the 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 depth of reflection of colonialization and colonization offered by the history of wine is, um, like, wine doesn't show up enough, I think, in people's, like, well, no, wine, wine doesn't show up until late in the story, it, because it takes time, that's the thing, I mean, that's always true about wine, wine takes time, it takes time to age, and it takes time for its reflection of history to become apparent, but it keeps track of the seasons, and it will, if you, dwell on it enough make make certain things just sort of make sense like it just it just sort of fits and there's something about the way that wine relates to markets or markets relate to wine or you know how much it costs versus how available it is versus how important it is versus yada 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 that you know it's it's always there it's always in the background it's whatever else might be going on always attempting either by its own devices or by ours or by whatever the combination is of the two to express place in a way that is sensorially so captivating and poetic that we move beyond the simple goal of it being nice enough to be worth getting drunk on that we dwell on it and we think about it and we make silly choices in order to experience it and to make it more authentically or to make it more successfully or to figure out what we mean by either of those things. So, yeah, um, I didn't do quite as much research as I was hoping to. I didn't get quite as deep into the weeds about the history of wine as I wanted to, but it's... um, 
and I really should have thought more about the the question. I brought up some questions for myself by doing this particular episode. Maybe maybe I'll do better episodes digging into those. Hopefully, yeah, you know, I I I, I want to give you more. I love y'all, and I want to I want to do something for you. Um, want to want to get my shit straight. But if nothing else, please think about what things in your life you can imagine believing in a god of and what that would mean like what the hell would that mean what the fuck would that mean and in the case of wine remembering that that god was usually represented as being fucking drunk and having a great time which is pretty fucking cool when you think about it like man god used to be fun you know and also like horrifying and terrible and like i mean god damn but yeah can't even imagine can't even imagine anyhow hope uh hope this was something uh patreon.com slash corktain i don't know which episode this is gonna be um and you know well uh it is homework to myself i'll I'll be recording another one of these we'll see maybe it'll be uh maybe it'll be better maybe it'll be worse who knows good luck to you i love you kiss kiss